When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Art of Charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Today we're talking with Sergio Popovich, author of Blueprint for Revolution. He was actually one of the organizers of the resistance to Slobodan Milosevic in Serbia in the 90s. And this is a an interesting conversation, maybe seems a little bit off topic, but I think psychology, human performance, and revolutions probably have more in common than we think. We're going to talk about, well, first of all, how revolutions in business have a lot of things in common, like branding and logos, and why nonviolence is more popular and more effective in so many ways, why there are no charismatic leaders in the most successful revolutions, and how to make a revolution cool by using comedy and other techniques. So enjoy this one with Serge Popovich. And you know what, if you're not into it, skip to the next. We got a lot of content here at The Art of Charm. With that, welcome to the show. We bring together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, in your relationships, and at work. If you're new to the show, we'd love to send you some top episodes and the toolbox where we discuss things like body language and nonverbal communication, persuasion, networking, negotiation, mentorship, and everything else we teach here at The Art of Charm. If you're in the US, you can text CHARMED, that's C-H-A-R-M-E-D, to 33444. Everywhere else, go to theartofcharm.com. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the right questions. All right, here's Serja Popovich. Serja, tell us what you do in one sentence. Uh, my name is Serja Popovich, and I'm uh, super passionate about educating people on how to empower themselves to change the world. To put a little romantic spin on it, do you consider yourself a professional revolutionary? Because that's kind of what you do for a living. I do a lot of different things for a living. I teach, I write books, I produce videos, I travel, I give speeches. And yes, we work with the groups who are involved in the revolution. I don't feel like I'm a professional revolutionary. I mo mostly feel like I'm there to share my experiences with people who are doing the revolutions because the only successful revolutions are those revolutions and changes that are coming from within. So they're can't be somebody from the outside who tell you what to do it, whether the skills and knowledges on this could be shared, which is the reason why I wrote this book. Now, I remember watching the Serbian revolution, the latest one, on television and watching a bulldozer go into a parliament building. And I thought everybody was pretty brave when I was watching that on TV to be doing that. And I remember feeling a little bit emotional about that too. I thought that was really cool. And that did influence my decision later to move to Serbia for over a year and teach English there. And, and I'll tell you, one thing that we have in common is that we've both been taken into custody and beat up by Serbian police. I think you and I have that in common. I'm not sure how many people share that outside Serbia. 
This is a several foreigners shared that, but in Serbia, it was pretty common. 2.5 thousand people were arrested during the time of the Milosevic only for opposing him. Some of them were badly beaten. Some of them even killed, including the editor-in-chief of the biggest Serbian opposition newspaper. First of all, I, I didn't know this part of your history. I would be super happy to have a beer with you and talk about your Serbian experience, because I think this is an amazing country that people should visit. Uh, you know, we, the Serbs, are not very well known for being nonviolent. And having such a po- international brand as a Serbian nonviolent revolution in 2000 was basically the main reason that is still driving me doing this job. The fact that there are people across the world who watch that movie, Bringing Down the Dictator, they get inspired, they come to us, they speak to us, they say, oh, the Serbs did something really cool against a really bad guy who was, uh, you know, convicted war criminal and did so many different things. And I think the bravery is something you mentioned. And I don't think we were particularly brave. And I think very often in our life, uh, we find ourselves in a situation where the situation dictates the rules. So if you would be a young Serb, if you would be a born between 69 and maybe 80, if you were be entering 90s from a very convenient middle-class life, very cool rock music, and then the nasty guy comes in, and then immediately everything turns around and people are becoming more nationalistic. And you start being fed with this crazy propaganda that you need to hate, hate people and get to war with them because of their ethnicity. The whole world falls apart. And this is exactly the situation my generation found itself in the 90s. From a very convenient world, we ended up in a very nasty world. We ended up running into the five wars. We ended up running into what used to be at the time the second biggest world hyperinflation. So complete crash of values, complete crash of economy, complete crash of perspective. If you would be a person of 20s in that type of environment, you would have only two choices, to fight or to flee. And some of our friends, of course, ended up living in a place like Chicago. We just commented off record that this is the second biggest Serbian city after my hometown of Belgrade. But a lot of us just stay back and fight back and said to Milosevic, no, we are not going to leave. You are going to leave. So it was more a necessity. I'm very proud if this inspires people. My Serbian friends, who are my age, slightly older, everybody knows about the group that you started, and I kinda wanna give a little bit of history here, because a lot of people might be thinking, wait, Serbia, isn't that that cold place that Russia has prisons? That's Siberia. So, Serbia, part of the former Yugoslavia, you had this leader, not a very uh, charismatic leader, Slobodan Milosevic. He came into power, like you said, you were in your, I guess, teens, early 20s, and basically turned what was a relatively prosperous socialist state, Yugoslavia, to a nationalist, almost fascist type of regime. Serbs are stubborn, and you and your friends, and tens of thousands of others, kinda got sick of his crap pretty quickly. How do you start thinking, look, we're the people who can do something about this? Because when I look around myself here in the States, I look at my friends and people complain about politics all the time. It seems like we're even, as Americans, often afraid to vote because it doesn't count. So I'm wondering what's telling you as Serbs, as young Serbs, hey, look, we can actually overthrow the entire government. It just seems like such a massive undertaking and it's so dangerous. What gave you both the courage and even the thought that you might succeed? Uh, Well, I mean, there are so many different levels of this question. I think, first of all, the historic context was uh, very similar to that ugly thing we are seeing in Europe and lately in the United States. 
that the national populists are taking over and they're spilling their poison and they're very effective in building on the hatred. I think the real problem we had is that we were living in a relatively happy, though a little bit outdated socialist state in 80s. And then the nasty guys came in and start selling hatred. And whether we're talking about the Serbia or Croatia or Bosnia, because this is the ugly amalgamus of three nasty nationalism that torn my country, the country I was born was called Yugoslavia, apart. And I think that, uh, once again, only two chances to fight or to flee. There was this wider question that probably appeals to a lot of people in the United States and other of your friends and a lot of people in Europe. And this is why this book is so much related to my favorite personal Bible, which is the Lord of the Rings. So the hobbits, they're the least usual suspects to change the world. They are not tall. They are not wearing the shiny armors. They don't know magic. And they're just lazy and love to eat and sit at home and smoke pot. And I think what what made us think that or wish that we can change the world was the same force that was driving for the buggins. And I think this is because there was nobody else to do the job. And there was this attempt to do it in 1992 to fight against the war, the large student protest outbreak. And of course, it died. 96-97, Milosevic lost the first trail of local elections. We demonstrated, and then he died because the opposition fell apart. In 1998, we felt like we were hitting the bottom. After the five wars, we were getting in war in Kosovo. We were getting involved with the war in NATO. And the regime was growingly, increasingly autocratic. The people were arrested for, you know, demonstrating in the streets. The newspapers were banned. The professors were just fired from the university because they were not affiliated with the regime. And out of this desperation growed not only the hope, but that this marvelous idea, which I assume is in the back of each world changer, and I will speak about this later, if not us, who else? And I think that's the reason why we named the chapter of the book, It Has to Be You, because if you don't take the responsibility in your hands, if you don't fight back the things you don't like, if you don't believe in yourself, then who else will? And we understood in 1998 when the movement called Otpor, which is the backbone of the book and used to be our launching pad to the world of activism, was formed, that there will be nobody else to take this ring to Mordor. It has to be us. Yes, we are hobbits. Yes, we are lazy. Yes, we have a big feet. Yes, we like to laid back lives. But if we don't do this, the whole future of our country is going to be swelled in the darkness. And we didn't want that to happen. We, we loved our country too much. And I think that was the main driving force. And there's this marvel scene in The Lord of the Rings where, you know, everybody else is arguing and then Frodo takes the decision to take the ring to Mordor and says, yes, I'm going to take the ring to the Mordor but I don't know the way. Well, this is the decision we made, and fortunately we have found a way. So Milosevic or Sauron was oust back there in 2000. Well, I love the Lord of the Rings analogy. I feel like you put a lot of thought into that. You are not winging that one at all, uh, as you t- as you describe it, and I, I love that. I gotta ask though, why nonviolence? Because when a regime is so violent, like I said, I've had run-ins with Serbian police, I've been, on both ends of fighting with Serbian police for various reasons, once which landed me in a slammer and the other time, let's just say I got away with it. But why nonviolence? Why was nonviolence the cornerstone of Otpor? By the way, the word itself means resistance. Why was the resistance, why was the cornerstone of the resistance nonviolent? 
Well, I think when you look at the principles of every single successful movement across the world, from Gandhi to Lech Walesa and Serbia and then everywhere else, you can see that there are only three principles, and we write about this in the book, that are keeping these movements together. If you want to be successful, you need to be united. If you want to be successful, you need to be strategic. And then the third principle is a nonviolent discipline. So for us, it was a little bit different than for Gandhi. And I think nonviolent discipline is a skill. And working with movements across the world, we very often face this question, how do we face violence with nonviolence? And first of all, we preached it. We thought that nonviolent way is more successful. It wasn't really cool being violent in a country which was driven through the rounds of the civil war. So it was also a cool factor. We also were teaching people to stay nonviolent. So the second level of nonviolent discipline, and we spent years training movements across the world how to maintain nonviolent discipline, is that you can teach your people not to attack the police, but, you know, to address them with flowers, uh, not to really yell, but really chant the supportive slogans, uh, not to really run into the police force, but, you know, sit in front of the police and show your indexes, which are your students' IDs. And the third level, very important one, is that in every struggle, there is a small group of the people who can share your goals, but may not share your commitment to nonviolence. Everywhere in the world is the same. You want to look at a Black Lives Matter or you want to look at a Serbia. In Serbian case, these were soccer fans. So the soccer fans in 90s were very, very effectively against Milosevic. But their idea of being against Milosevic was attacking the police and spreading the violence. One single act of violence can destroy the credibility of the nonviolent movement. Because imagine the crowd of the 10,000 people peacefully demonstrating in a Times Square or whatever equivalent of this exists in Chicago. And then, you know, three drunk idiots start throwing stones and attack the police. So it's like there is this media thirst for violence, and you need to understand this. And different movements across the world have discovered the very different tactics to deal with not getting affiliated with violent groups. So preach nonviolence, number one. Second, train your troops not to be violent. And number three, take a look at the battlefield. Take a look at specifically the groups that are sharing your values, but they're not sharing your commitment to nonviolence because these guys can end up being the biggest threat to your movement. Now, one point of wisdom that I saw in the book that I thought was a pretty astute observation that you're able to recruit more people for a nonviolent movement because there's lower risk. You don't have to be a combat age male to enlist, right? You can enlist literally old ladies to be nonviolent and stick flowers in the barrel of a gun, or you can recruit 18-year-old college females. You guys had the strategy, a very Serbian strategy of putting very beautiful women in the front of the protest lines because nobody wants to smack a lady with the butt of a rifle in the front of the line. And you have this protest line of just like really good looking women and the cops are standing there pretty impotent to do anything about it without looking just absolutely horrible to everyone involved. Well, I think there are like the several level of this. One thing is scientific and to warn your readers, this is not an academic book. It's not boring. It doesn't have footnotes. So if you're explaining the academic book, don't buy this one. But there is an academic research on it. And the two great American scholars Maria Stefan and Erika Chenovet were looking at the different aspects of nonviolent struggle. They found it out that the nonviolent struggle is twice more likely to succeed over the last 100 of years 
than the violence struggle. They were looking at the figures and they were looking at the participation and they found out that, of course, the more people participate, the better the possibility of positive success. And the nonviolent struggle, it's all about the numbers. And of course, if you're running a very cool, nice street demonstration, which we can call protestival because it's a combination of a protest and a festival, the cool people will come in, the people will feel well, the people will appear with their kids, with their girlfriends. You know, it's like everybody's going to have a fun. But if you're running a violent demonstration and, you know, the stones are thrown and somebody shoots the tear gas, the less people will participate. That brings us to the second point in our teaching where we are talking the workshop or university courses. We're always looking at the level of the participation. So what would make me participate in this protest if I share the values, of course? B, if the tactic is cool. And if the risk is low, not too many people would risk losing jobs or getting beaten up or getting arrested. Okay, that makes two of us, you and me, a little bit of the crazy people, but we are a very small proportion of the society. So when you're looking at the methods of successful nonviolent struggle, you would be looking at the things which are low-risk tactics. And it's like you can go to the Iran and understand that, you know, if people demonstrate in the street in a society like Iran, everybody gets killed. But then if you get to the social media, if you get the ringtone, if you get on YouTube, then, you know, say if you wear a symbol, which was our trick in Serbia, you're just wearing a little small badge on your jacket showing the symbol of the movement, you're not really likely to be arrested because even in the oppressive societies, it's very difficult to arrest people for wearing pins on their jackets. So you would be looking at the low-risk tactics that we are advising to the world that will make participation bigger but they will also make people feel that they did something important. You know, so one of the things that distincts the successful movement from just a random protest is that our people are feeling part of it. And they will feel part of it if they can do something and get away with it. So 996, 97, we had a stray of street demonstrations. The police was beating us. And immediately somebody came out with the idea that instead of marching in the street and risking being beaten, will go on our windows and hitting pots and pans. So immediately this thing from, you know, several tens of thousands of people protest turned into the national thing. So grannies and kids and teenagers and daddies would come on the windows at the time of the state TV news, which were the symbol of the state propaganda, protesting by making noise. So immediately I would see my neighbor coming out, you know, with his baseball bat, hitting a big petrol can, making a noise. Of course, as a musician, I was having a very loud speaker. So that was a combination of Rammstein and Red Hot Chili Peppers. And then you know, so my grandma would go and she was in her 70s. She could never go on the street and demonstrate because, you know, if police hits in, she will break an ankle. So it's like a, she was on her window. She was hitting her pot that she was cooking a soup for me a day before. So everybody was involved. So you will look at the tactics, which are low risk, dispersive. Everybody can participate and very, very important, everybody can get away with it. Because if people get away with it and feel fun and feel good about doing something for their purpose, they're very likely to participate in your movement in the future. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love 
creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, back to the show. If you do dive into violence, people get scared sometimes and they look for strong leaders and authoritarians to protect them. They rule by fear. So if you keep everybody kind of having fun, participating and making it a wide swathe of people, it doesn't look like a fringe group. It looks like everybody and you're getting away with it and the risk is low. So basically the regime, which gets an A plus in violence and not much more, can't use their best weapon that effectively. And so you're kind of taking that away from them. Absolutely. And when you look at the groups that were the most successful in it, these were exactly the groups operate in a very violent area. I'm running a small nonprofit called Canvas, and this organization deals with the groups that are operating in a very, very violent environment. And, you know, if you read a book, you will discover how inventive these groups are and which are the great ways they are putting their opponents in a dilemma and how they're using the humor and mocking and whether they're using a very low-risk tactics, you know, so even in Assad, Syria, which you can imagine the most violent place in the world, there were people who are protesting nonviolently. And, of course, the first thought would be if you go on the street, you get shot. But they were super successful. They were, A, painting the fountains in Damascus, which is the capital of Syria, in red, reminding everybody in Damascus that blood of the rebels is spilled elsewhere. And then B, they were capable of painting thousands of little ping pong balls. And you can imagine the green market in the Sunday. Everybody's there. Everybody's buying. Immediately, thousands of the little ping pong balls carrying the messages of freedom and, you know, anti-Sad messages have been released. And people who do this are hitting this thing and they are running away. So nobody gets arrested. Everybody gets a message. And I think making these tactics as available to the people and as participative as they can be is the key to this. The fact that you are nonviolent doesn't guarantee that your opponent won't get violent, and violence is no cure for anything, and the less violence you experience, the better. And of course, being nonviolent doesn't mean you're not fighting a war. It just means you're fighting that war with different weapons. Why is it important to realize that this is still a war, even though it's nonviolent? Because every conflict is a war. The struggle against the Soviet Union was a war. The struggle for gay rights run by Harvey Milk in San Francisco was exactly waged as a war. And if your listeners are really want to spend their weekend well, they would watch the Harvey Milk, this amazing movie by Sean Penn, where you can look at the development of the movement and you can look at almost all the rules. So first of all, who was for Harvey Milk? He was a hobbit. He was one of us. He was not Harvard graduate guy. 
he was the guy who was running a small camera shop in Castro Street in San Francisco. So he tried from the fringe, and he was advocating strongly for what he was passionate about was the gay rights. Situation at the time was terrible. Being LGBT was considered to be a mental disease in America these days. And he was running against this, and he was trying to make an issue. And he decided to run for the parliament of city of San Francisco or city council, whatever is that name. And he runs on a platform that the gay rights should be protected. And he loses miserably because people in the mainstream don't see this as an issue. So he evolves a little bit. He changes his methods. He's not making it a case. He's not turning himself a victim. And then he starts campaigning. And he ends up, he tries putting together the liberal communities of San Francisco. And he still ends up being third, not winning. And then one day he wakes up and he understands that the majority of the people is those people who they need to listen. And he goes to the people and he figures out immediately as a revelation that for people in San Francisco at that age, it was the dog's poop. That was the top thing, number one. Kids, the people in calm neighborhoods were super obsessed with the fact that that was the dog's poop capital, which later turned to Paris, which later turned to Belgrade. And then he changes the tune. So he runs his third and victorious campaign based on a sentence that whether great gay or straight, I'm the guy who's going to curtail you of the dog's poop. Guess what? He wins. He becomes the first openly LGBT person to be elected in any state institution in the U.S. The rest is history. In the next 10 years, even the right-wing candidates are going to support the gay marriage in the U.S. But that was made by the one big shift. You understand that the numbers are always in the mainstream. B, you understand that you need to listen, not preach to the people for the social change, that people will mobilize and sacrifice for the things that they find personally important, even if they are so trivial as uh, streets covered with a dog's poop. And you end up being victorious and being in the position to implement your great ideas and your great values, as Harvey Milk was. I would like to talk a little bit about how Otpor uses essentially business principles to create the brand of cool. You mentioned earlier you created things, you made them cool, right? You avoided charismatic leaders because you didn't want the movement to be able to be stopped by the police just by a simple arrest, but you had to brand it in a certain way that made the whole group cool. And I thought that was a really interesting theory and a really interesting way that you did this in practice because you actually made it cool to join the group and cool to get arrested. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, one of the reasons that I'm getting letters from readers who are coming from a marketing sector and they read Blueprint for Revolution is they find this fascinating. It was also a necessity rather than the conscious business model thinking. What connects Serbs and Americans is that we have this great individualism and there is always a lone cowboy who solves the thing as opposed to the great leaders and great institutions in our social narrative. So... In the 90s, we understood that the political leaders lost the contact with the people on the ground. Whether we are talking about the government or the opposition, there is no representativeness of the people on the ground. And we just filled this vacuum. So what we basically did, we developed a movement which was ideally related to the situation in Serbia. It was leaderless. So there were no leaders that can be corrupted, that can be killed, that can be arrested. So the movement gets uh, his head cuts off. 
On the other hand, we were looking at the very individualism of the Serbian people. So the basic idea was that we were uniting around the vision, and that was the joint vision of Serbian Europe, peace and freedoms that we lacked in 90s, that B, we are communicating through the symbol, and the symbol of the Klanschfest that was used in Serbia in 2000 was later used in eight different countries from very different parts of the world, to Venezuela, to Egypt, to Georgia. Behind this program or the political vision and the logo, there was a people who were taught to be leaders, not the members, not the followers. So our general idea was to develop so many different layers of leadership that A, people feel the movement belongs to them. Because if people feel the movement belongs to them, they give the best. And then on another level, we want to be sure if Milosevic arrests the 10, 15 people who were the logistically running the movement or 50 people who were running the top 50 branches, the show will go on. And we were super afraid of the fact that, you know, the Secret Service was ready to pick us up. And we made a system which was based on individual leadership, a lot of local autonomy, the very recognizable symbol and the brand. I mean, you guys just put branding in Serbia, you'll get a great 11 minutes video on the YouTube about this on our website. What basically happened was that this thing exploded and there were so many people feeling like they want to contribute to this and they came in with the ideas. And then we ended up in a situation where one of our local branches would compete with another one on who would be doing the crazier things that will gain more media attention, that will provoke the regime to the level that they get more people arrested. That was a nightmare for any centralistic regime because ideally they will surveil up to 30 people and they will know exactly what the thing will do. So by listening to my phone, they can't even predict what is happening in one of the Serbian municipalities because in that municipality, it was the own creativeness of the movement people that was driving things on. You did a great job, though, with the T-shirts. Tell us about the T-shirts. Every time you get arrested, you end up with a shirt. What was that all about? Well, I mean, so because the movement's logo was the clenched fist and because the way to express it was to carry a T-shirt with it, and then later these T-shirts were super popular from Kenya to Georgia or wherever, what really happened was that we tried to reward our people. And we like to carry on the arrest as a badge of honor. And, you know, if you look at the American media, you will understand how much the Purple Hearts and Silver Stars are appreciated. So being arrested was a kind of Purple Star. You got wounded in the battle because you were great and you came out alive and you came back to the battle, which arises recognition. So every time you get arrested and get a release, you get a new T-shirt. It was like the ranks in the army or the ranks of honor, whatever it is. And, you know, the more time you were arrested, you would be sharing the more rare t-shirt because the movement actually didn't have a local branches with leaders so the real show of how important you are for movement are how active you were and i think that's a great lesson for every movement across the world you want to reward activism and the investments of the people energy and the investments of the people time so so what really happened was that we ended up with the people competing to getting the high t-shirt. But you know, in their own social life, we were talking about the movement which average age was 21, making this cool and in factor, both with a great strategy and this branding strategy, but also with this feeling of belonging to the group and also this great feeling of being nonviolent and funny and party animals and humorous. And I think that what it really made, it's like imagine being reversing your world. 
political activism is considered to be boring. And what about if you are not arrested, you can date, you're not going to get laid, and you're 22. <laughs> so the ugliest nerd that was arrested seven times has uh, more chances with beautiful Serbian girls than you who are studying top and you are not participating in a protest. Thinking about the peer pressure, what that will make you do. You will join the protest. You will give up trying to be the good guys. You will try being up at troublemakers. Amazing. So if I hypothetically have been arrested or been to jail twice in Serbia, what color t-shirt do I get? Uh, probably you're going to get the black one with a white fist with nothing inscripted on it because these with inscription were just, you know, printed in tens of thousands. But with these without inscription, they were related to the fact that people were arrested several times. And then when you get to the red T-shirt, that would mean that you would be arrested five times or more. Oh, man, I got work to do before my red T-shirt in Serbia, although I think maybe the deadline has passed for getting arrested and getting a T-shirt. Hey. But then, man, there are so many different places in the world where this thing is happening. And I think looking at the world, amazingly how this stupid violence, and especially in later uh, last several years, this terrorism threat has wiped out this brave activity from the people from across the world. And if you dig it a little bit, and that's the advantage of digital era, you will see people doing amazing things in Zimbabwe this week, opposing one of the longest lasting dictatorship in the world. You'll see people in Cambodia doing amazing things this year. You'll see people in Venezuela who are starving, trying to, you know, start the impeachment referendum against the, against the government. So don't lose hope. There are so many places where you go there and get arrested enough time. There is a plenty of good dates waiting for you, my friend. <laughs> Great. Good to know, everybody out there. One of the things you note in the book is that if you want to get a mass movement going within a very short span of time, especially in the age of the internet and other distractions, you need to use humor. Tell us about how you used comedy, not only to get rid of Milosevic, but the people that you're training in Syria and, and these other places, you're using comedy. It's one of the main weapons that you use. Well, one of the chapters of the book was named Love Your Way to Victory, and that's the intention. So first of all, you need to understand the background of it. It was not the scientific. It's just because the Serbs are not serious. And, you know, it's like doing the things against Milosevic, which was the classic dilemma actions. We would come out with a big petrol barrel. We will paint Milosevic on it. And then the people can put the money, a little coins in it and get a baseball bat and hit the face of the president on the barrel the way you are playing a pinball game or a Pac-Man video game for those who are my generation. The people felt relieved about it and they were doing a little thing. And it was a low risk. And, you know, we came out with this idea and we brought this big barrel to the Serbian version of the 5th Avenue. And the downtown shoppers came in with the bags and with kids. And they were looking curiously at this big barrel. And there was a cartoon of Mr. President on it. And first the kids start playing and the people start playing. And before 15 minutes passed, the people were standing in line. There were like 150 people standing in line. And they wanted to hit the face of Mr. President just to express how deeply they respect him. And that was funny. But the funniest part was when police arrived. Because if you would be a policeman in that situation, what would you do? Arrest people who organized the event. We were nowhere to be seen. We pulled back to the nearby cafe and having an espresso. Arrest the downtown shoppers. Take them to the police station and do what? You will accuse them for hitting the barrel with President's face while they were shopping, they will be out in uh, 15 seconds and you, you will get sued. 
And then, of course, they made the most stupid choice out of all. They arrested the barrel. So the picture of the policeman dragging the petrol barrel with the face of Mr. President to police car ended up being the most popular photo shared on a Serbian independent media outlets. So when you're looking at this humor and when you're looking at this power of the thing we call loftivism, is that it is everywhere. And there are like three reasons, in my opinion, why humor is so powerful. First of all, it breaks fear. It comes from our human nature. If you are preparing for a major surgery, the last thing you want to hear about is that, you know, somebody puts these beautiful metal objects in and then they will take these things out and ah, you get scared. And instead of that, if your friend cracks a joke while you're waiting for a surgery room, you laugh and the fear goes away. It's in our human nature. The humor breaks fear. And very often fear is the power of the status quo. The second very important reason is that humor makes things cool and in. Just think about your personal life. Who is the most likable person to be around? Look at your cell phone. Is it the tallest one, strongest one, richest one, the one in the best car, or the person who can always make you laugh? Everybody wants to be around the pranksters. That works for movement. If the movements are funny, if they're mocking the authority, the people would love to join in because they feel good. And it is our human nature to join things that make us feel good. And then last, but not of least importance, take a look at the guys in power. And whether democratically elect or authoritarians, they're just too fed with themselves. They're looking their pages of newspapers, they're looking their face in the TV, billboards, and things of that kind, and they start figuring themselves too seriously. So sometimes when somebody mocks them, they don't know how to react. And one of the case studies or the anecdotes in the book is a story from Barnaul, Siberia. And Siberia is not Serbia, just for record. It's as far from Serbia as California, and it is in another part of the Russia. So what happened there, 2012, Putin would win presidential elections anyhow, but some of his guys were super enthusiastic, so they were caught stealing, stuffing ballot boxes. So the people went on street, they went on protests, and these protests were banned in provincials. So the people from a very small city of Barnaul, in the middle of Siberia, that's a very cold place, 4,000 people live there, which makes it a side of the Greenell, Iowa, which I know well. It's a very small place. Yes, I teach there. And so the size of the Greenell, and the people are coming to the main square, and they can't protest, but they decided that they're toys can. So they're building a little Lego city, and they're bringing a little Lego toys and kinder toys and the things they collected from their kids. And if you're running a two-year-old kid like I do, you will know that three of us can build a legal city and build a legal protest. So they build a little protest and they make a little protest signs, quoting for free and fair elections, claiming that 146% votes for Putin, things of that kind. And they build it in downtown. And the first day, everything is nice. There are people building their toy protests. The police is there. Everybody's laughing. It's a small place. People know they're policemen. And you know everybody's taping it. Then tomorrow this goes viral on the YouTube. And somebody sees this in Kremlin. And they understand the ingenuity behind this. And they understand that this is a very effective way to mock Putin. So the phone rings to the chief police in Barnaul. Somebody calls him from Kremlin. And of course he stands up in front of the cameras making the most stupid statement in the history of the police, probably, quoting that the protest of 100 legal soldiers 
50 toy cars and 20 legal toys is banned because the toys are not citizens of Russia and only citizens of Russia can protest. So here we are in the situation where a bunch of very creative people is making a low-risk tactics using the resources which they have at their home so there is no funding needed, and they end up on the cover page of The Guardian and The New York Times. And more important, what does it tell you about the thing number three? You remember, humor breaks fear, humor makes you cool, and humor puts your opponent in lose-lose situation. So here he is, the great strong man of Russia, the guy who likes posing shirtless, wrestling tigers, saving dolphins from drowning, and here he is, and he's afraid of the legal soldiers. So when you're looking at the stupidity with which people in power are responding to humor, you can understand how laughter is actually a super powerful thing, and it can be a very powerful thing in challenging power, where this power is coming from democracy or authoritarianism. Thanks for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. For a list of all the amazing sponsors and discount codes, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now, back to the show. Right, so these leaders are so autocratic and authoritarian, they start believing their own propaganda, taking themselves too seriously, and ruling by fear. Fear of your own neighbors, fear of surveillance, fear of the police, and you pop that bubble with comedy, and it starts to gain momentum because it's funny, and people share funny things more so than maybe dangerous things. And so you end up with this snowball effect that put the police and the dictator in a lose-lose situation where they have to take action doing what only thing that they can do, which is exert force. And you're making them exert force over Lego guys, stuffed animals, and generic Soviet-era G.I. Joe figures that people don't want anymore that they found in their basement. So it looks completely ridiculous. Where was it that You'd sent the police chasing after turkeys. Was that also Serbia? Yeah, that was Kragujevac, the third biggest Serbian city. Well, the fourth, if you count Chicago in. There was one of these crazy activities. When you really want to build a successful movement, you want people being a part of this movement. And that means that you need to run and operate on their own ideas. And one of the things my organization does is like we are giving the people the format so they come out with the creative ideas, what they call the dilemma action. So one of the things we did in Serbia, his wife was a super bad character. She was into advocating violence. She was into advocating the repression. And there are people who hated her. And instead of, you know, throwing things at her, they decided to mock her. So what they did was they were using her signature sign, and you can imagine the lady wearing the plastic, Chinese plastic flower in her hair. So they were putting this type of flowers on the turkeys. The turkey, which is not a very bad animal, was considered to be an offense in Serbia. You would say turkey if somebody's stupid or, you know, it's like it's not coping or stuff like that. Very far from a traditional American political correctness, the Serbs are not politically correct, but they would put a little plastic flowers on turkeys and they would just let the turkeys loose. So what happened was that police, in order to prevent people connecting the image of turkeys with the plastic flower, with the image of the most beloved Mr. President's wife or the first lady, they start chasing turkeys. But the game was to understand that, you know, it's like it is your who dictating the show. And one of the things that this book, Blueprint for Revolution, is teaching you 
is that it really needs to be an offense. You will never win by sitting on defensive possession and agreeing with the things of your neighborhood. If you want to win, you want to take the offense. And you need to understand that, you know, it's like what your opponent is and what the pillars of support or the institutions are and what are your chances. And one of the places you're really strong and your opponent is really weak is creativity. So really want to boost this creativity and decentralizations. You want to look at the people of the movement. You want to understand there's so many people with so great ideas, and you want to nurture these ideas to the very successful actions. Eventually, your opponent will be ending up doing something stupid like arresting turkeys or a pet for better. Right, I mean, you've got the petrol barrel, the turkeys running around, these fat, overweight cops running around picking up ping pong balls, bouncing downstairs and streets in Damascus. And I mean, even, there's so many examples in the book, the police in Damascus having to reach into dog or horse, I don't even know what it is, poop, and fish out these little music players playing revolutionary music that were planted in garbage cans and just in the most disgusting places by people so that they would have to literally get their hands dirty stopping all of these little affronts to Assad. And you definitely have all kinds of social mojo as well. I mean, embarrassing, really strict and violent police officers' wives by showcasing their husband's dirty deeds at their their favorite cafes and beauty salons and things like that, and, and essentially taking the wind out of their sails by making them feel consequences indirectly. Last but not least, the Red Hot Chili Pepper stunt that you guys pulled on New Year's Eve. Can you tell us a little bit about that? That was a pretty powerful, I think, pivotal moment for your movement. Well, I think the one of the very important things you mentioned that strategically what you want to look at it is that every social movement, whether you're struggling for uh, preventing climate change, LGBT rights, or democracy in a place like Zimbabwe, operates on a very similar level. You want to look at your opponent, you want to look at yourself, you want to look at the battlefield. You want to identify the groups that you need to make a change because the nonviolence change, the democratic change, comes from numbers. And to pull these numbers on your side, you need to listen to the people and you need to offer to the people the strategy and the tactics that they can participate because it's a participation of the people. The bottom-up change is very different than the elite-driven change. And I think that's the main reason I wrote this book was to inspire the future hobbits. And it's like the one of the things we successfully did was looking at these symbols that we want to overtake. And one of the symbols was the New Year's Eve, and we talking about the year 2000. We wanted to face the hundreds of thousands of people who would normally come to the rock concert with the fact that we are living in a country where there is nothing actually to celebrate. Milosevic was still in power. Thousands of people were dying in his wars, where the Serbs or the Bosnians or the Croats. What we did, we made actually the biggest prank concert in the history of the region, we invited people to the rock event and there were rock blinds paying and there was a big rumor that the Red Hot Chili Peppers are coming. And they were big at the time. It was uh, several years after they were top on the charts in U.S. And some of the rock bands from abroad also supported the Serbian movement. So the people were trusting that this is going to be the big event. So the crowd was really great. And then instead of Red Hot Chili Peppers, there was a 15 minutes documentary naming name after name after name the persons who died in Milosevic's crazy conflicts, different nationalities coming from a civil sector, coming from a military. And there was a strong message that we need a change 
to put us in place where we are really gathering on the big squares and celebrating the New Year's Eve. And everybody here should, instead of celebrating, should go home and think, what should I do to make this next New Year worth celebration? And amazingly, tens of thousands of people just went home. Tens of thousands of people amazingly went home. They were not throwing things at us. They were not disappointed by the fact that we basically cheated them because they were expecting a big rock concert. And the message was clear. It's you need to be something. And, you know, it's like, let's get out of our zone of comfort and let's get to the place where I need to do something and you need to do something and your neighbor needs to do something. And so we meet on this same place next year. Milosevic is out and we have a future to celebrate. And it was amazingly effective. And I think it also influenced the common people. And it was a kind of a sobering experience for a lot of people who really thought that the protesting is all about rock songs and getting together and having fun, a cable of the ice-cold war thrown on the hands of the people. But it went amazingly well. And I think it was the part of the very important campaign of sobering people, and it has to be you. So there is nobody else who is going to do for you until you are listening to the rock concert. There won't be a rock concert. It has, it has to be you. Now, how did you reverse engineer the things you learned overthrowing Milosevic and create a curriculum to teach other revolutionaries? Because I know when we look at things that have made us socially or, or successful in business here at The Art of Charm, when we reverse engineer those things to teach at our live programs, that's one of our biggest challenges. I mean, how did you think, okay, here's what worked and we're gonna teach other people from around the world how to wage war against their own government? And that was exactly the question asked to me by Adam Grant, whom I, I'm admiring who wrote this originals book. And when he was interviewing me, we were talking about this, and I think he was disappointed with the answer. And the answer was that we learned it through experience and we get it to the point where something works. And then the real sobering moment was when Zimbabweans and Belarusians came to Serbs in 2003 and say, oh, we need your advice. So it started as a hobby. We were traveling to the oppressive countries we were meeting with the groups who watched Bringing Down Dictator, which is a great recommending documentary of the Serbian struggle. One hour well spent. It's shorter than the episode of Game of Thrones, and it's equally thrilling. And it was translated to many different languages, and people were looking at it and getting these ideas from Serbs. And from there, we started building the curriculum because it became a little bit more serious after we worked with the groups from Georgia and Ukraine, 2003, 2004, the two great nonviolent revolution happens in that places. It went virally. Everybody was talking about this. And then we formed the organization called Center for Applied Nonviolent Action and Strategies or Canvas. Still very small. It's five employees, 12 trainers. And we try to respond to the people who seek to build the movements for nonviolent change. Since the last 12 years, we worked with groups from 47 different countries, from very oppressive societies, places like Burma or Egypt, to the super cool groups like Greenpeace. And every time we learn, and we try to develop curriculum which will basically equip people with tools on how to build the nonviolent movements. And then in the last nine years, we start building it on universities. We teach this course at Colorado College, and we're going to do it this October in NYU, we are going to do it online in Harvard. So there is a growing interest in uh, academic institutions 
for this type of practical knowledge. Because, you know, it's like when you look at the world, when you understand that 52% of nonviolent movements were successful, when you look at the great achievements that the nonviolent struggle really brought to this world, whether we are talking about, you know, universal voting rights, the racial rights, the LGBT rights, the right for people to form the labor unions or the democracy, it is the nonviolent struggle you would look at. And what Canvas, my organization, is trying to do is to figure out how to equip common people like you with the tools so you can get home. You can look at a problem in your neighborhood where this is a garbage, the dog's poop, or unlikely presidential candidate that will help you organize the people around this topic. Now, last but definitely not least, don't you worry for your safety? I mean, you mentioned in the book that when you were training the Syrian resistance, you soon enough, you started to hear about the government grumbling about Serbian agents causing trouble in the Middle East. First of all, how do you find out about that? Where does that word come from? And don't you worry that one day you might wake up dead? First of all, it's a very important and very interesting how the autocratic regimes are becoming the growingly paranoid about their own people meeting with us or learning this wisdom. You want to look at the Russia, you want to look at the Syria, you want to look at the Turkey. You'll see the regimes absolutely being obsessed with the idea of the nonviolent struggle and how the activists get this knowledge. And they're super consumed with this idea that somehow it's all the foreign conspiracy and their own people are basically sheep that can't really organize around the issues, so they need a foreign help. Here, this is CIA, MI6, MI5, James Bond 007, or the canvas to ignite this revolt. We are very concerned about the safety of our own activists, which is why our next big project is called Whistler. It's an online app we are developing with Wicker Foundation that will enable people to communicate, report on human rights violations and leaks, and also learn on a completely safe encrypted online platform. So we are aware that the people are in danger. We are aware that there are nasty guys hating us. And we are aware that there is a lot of propaganda spread around how to prevent people to get in touch with this evil Serbian knowledge, which is why I'm super proud that book has been published in eight different countries and five different languages up to now, including some I can't even spell like Turkish or Korean. And I think that where we are going right now is that we are very different than the 20th century. We are 20th century. It was who owns more rackets, who owns more weapons. In 21st century, it's a battle of knowledge. And if we can build the tools and videos and applications and university courses and workshops that empower people to fight for freedom, rights, democracy, faster than the bad guys can maintain the status quo, then the world is winning. If the populism overtake, if the hatred overtake, if this idea that we are all different as opposed to we are all born equal wins in this world, we're looking at a very unhappy world for our kids. Father of a two-year-old and the father of the one that is coming in November, I'm very concerned about this prospect. And I'm ready to to spend the, the most of the rest of my life working on empowering people on how to build a more better free and democratic world. Sergio, thanks so much. I really appreciate you coming on the show and discussing the anatomy of a revolution. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanna make sure that you deliver? 
Well, I mean, thank you. It was it was a great talking to you. I know the great reputation of your podcast. I was proud to participate in it. If there would be one thing, people keep writing me from different parts of the world. And what is really interesting that somebody from Zimbabwe reads the book, then, you know, they or Venezuela or places of that kind, that's a usual suspect. And these are the people who are involved in democracy struggles. Recently, 80% of my emails are coming from places like America and Great Britain and France and Germany. And the question is how to stop the right-wing nuts populists from screwing up the values that we grew up to. This is really amazing development. I was expecting more of the climate change, LGBT rights, you know, it's like this typical activist profile to write me. And this knowledge can be used to prevent the very values our societies are based upon. It's funny coming full circle, right? I watched this on TV when I was a teenager, ended up working in Serbia, and now I'm interviewing the guy who orchestrated, in part, this revolution. I mean, literally, look it up on YouTube. There's a bulldozer driving through the Capitol building, through this line of police officers. I mean, it, I just, I remember imagining being a cop and seeing this bulldozer coming and just going, okay, this is the fat lady singing, this is over. I mean, that guy's getting in, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, Sergio, thanks so much. Interesting stuff. I mean, I'm just, I love the idea that they figured out how to engineer revolution, use comedy, be creative, and sort of push just enough on that bubble, the veneers that the dictator puts over them, to have them step across the line and make a bad move and then capitalize on that, because you can't fight force with force. It's kind of a jujitsu type thing, and there's a lot of social dynamics at play here as well. The book is Blueprint for a Revolution. We'll have that linked in the show notes, and Sergio will have his Twitter linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including the book and documentary. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode. We'll link to the show notes right on your phone, and I'm also on Twitter, at The Art of Charm. You can say hello or engage with me or curse me out there. Bootcamp on live program details, bootcamp.theartofcharm.com. We sell out months in advance. So if you're thinking about it a little bit, you're curious about what we do here at our live programs, get in touch, get some info from us so you can plan ahead. And we've got our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge, or you can text charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. It's essentially a free online mini course about networking, connection skills, inspiring people to develop personal and professional relationships with you, and we'll send you that fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, some videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward. All in all, it'll make you a better networker and a better connector, and especially a better thinker. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed here in the U.S. to 33444. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else, either in person or shared on the web. So stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.